0: Thank you, brother. Well, good morning, everyone. Or sorry, good evening, everyone. Raising peace, PC guys, thank you guys for coming back out again. If you have a Bible with you, please turn with me to the letter of James. The letter of James. We'll be looking at chapter one this evening, verses thirteen to eighteen. James chapter one, verses thirteen to eighteen. Guess everyone's sitting over here, so I'll just be looking over here tonight. <laughs> And so the title of my sermon today is The Truth About Sin. The Truth About Sin, James 1, 13 to 18. And once you find your place in your Bible's loved ones, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version as well. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18, The Truth About Sin. This is the word of the Lord, church, this evening. Here in the letter of James, in chapter 1, starting in verse 13, the brother of James writes... Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord this evening, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this. Another opportunity, God, just to gather in your name. Lord, what a grace it is. Um, our brothers and sisters around the world, in some parts at least, are are persecuted and it's very hard for them to do so. But I thank you that we have the freedom to still do so now a second time, Lord. And I just thank you, Lord, for that. And I just pray that um, our singing of songs together, Lord, and as we just hear the word preached right now, and even as we, um, for those who are unable to take the Lord's Supper in the morning, that Lord, is even just by participating in all these different things as I preach, um, everyone else listens, that, Lord, we will just be more molded into the image of Jesus, that, Lord, we will put off the sins in our lives, Lord, um, some that were mentioned by Pastor Josh this morning, but ultimately to put on Christ-like holiness, Lord, by putting the things that we ought to ought to put on, Lord, Father. And so, Lord, I just pray that you just be with us tonight, Lord, be with myself, Lord, that I will not mess you your word in any way, but that, Lord, it'll just come out clearly, Um and simply, Lord, before your people, and that your people, Lord, will not just be mere hearers of the word, um, but they will be doers, Lord, who act upon the things that are heard um that are preached from this pulpit, from your word. And so Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this blessed opportunity to hear your word preached, and we just lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. BBC at church. And so I'm not sure if you remember the movie last year that was released, the new Batman movie, right? It was simply called The Batman. And I remember during that time, people were calling it, this is the darkest Batman that's ever come out, right? And yes, the, 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 the theme of darkness, that has always been the essence of the Batman franchise, if you are a DC fan. However, it really took it to a whole new level that has never been done before in this last movie. For example, not only was the movie dark emotionally through like, the plot and character development, but the cinematography of the movie was extremely dark. And what I mean by that is that everything in the movie was so dark that the director's biggest concern was actually like, is, is, are, is everything going to be visible for the viewers when they see the film? And even when you consider just the main character Batman, the story antagonist, the hero, he's really nothing more than a vigilante trying to do good while hiding in the shadows. And the only reason I bring this example up from the culture is because it reflects a very disturbing truth that we have been seeing growing um, for the past couple years, the idea that our culture is continually embracing the idea of darkness. We live in times just in pop, pop culture where heroes are no longer clearly presented as good guys. Instead, they are a blurred combination of what seems to be good and evil, darkness, and light smashed together. And so we live in a, we live in a culture where because of that, people do not longer believe in objective good and evil An objective Um, morality and so and that's not only with pop culture but that's with everything with economics government politics sexuality religion you name it but yet the one thing that the world has always failed and seemingly failed to embrace throughout human history is its responsibility for that darkness what do i mean by that well for those who know in in the bible in genesis chapter 3 it clearly defines the origin of evil which the bible calls sin And sin, which is the rebellion against the perfect essence of goodness, God the creator, it stems from the sinful desires of the human heart. Because we're the first humans, Adam and Eve, they were originally made to glorify God. God's the greatest good imaginable, right? He is the standard of what is right and wrong. And human beings, Adam and Eve and you and me, they were made in his image to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But in that account in Genesis chapter 3, they had a choice to either live and obey for God, or do their own thing. And when they were tempted by their own sinful desires in their heart, they wanted to be like God themselves. And because of that, they rebelled against God, and then rest is history. Sin and death came into the world, destroying everything in its path. And that's only true for Adam and Eve. but that's true for you and me, loved ones. Instead of taking responsibility for sin there in the garden— we find really the world's first example of blame shifting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, where Adam says to God, like, God, I know I sinned against you, and, and I know I was not supposed to, but really it's your fault, God. The woman you gave me, that's the reason why I sinned against you. And so as a result, ever since then, all of humanity shifts their responsibility of sin towards others. Whether it's a small child blaming their older sibling for breaking something, I always got the blame because I'm the older sibling. It sucked. Maybe a high schooler, maybe a high schooler beats up another kid's so like, hey man, you're looking at my girl, don't be doing that. Maybe a college student, maybe they were cheating on a test because the teacher's unfair grading and even today with the, de- with the development of AI, it's even becoming so much easier to cheat on essays and stuff like that. Maybe a spouse cheating on their significant other because they felt unappreciated by them or just a regular person blaming God for all the evil that is in the world today. Humanity blames others for their sin, and especially towards God. And yet, we're going to see that tonight in James, that in our text this evening, loved ones, he is going to address this exact same problem that we see not only today, but through all human history. James deals with this same problem to his audience in the first century. And so before we can actually jump into the text, I need to address something about James's situation because it will help us appreciate what he's trying to get at here in James chapter 1. First and foremost, however, just to give some background, most scholars believe that James, the half-brother of Jesus, he was writing to a bunch of Jewish believers who were displaced outside the nation of Israel. Also, they, it is also believed that the letter of James was the first book written in, in the New Testament, dating to around like the late 80s, 40s per se. And furthermore, James writes not only to Jewish Christians, but they were being heavily heavily persecuted primarily because they were socially poor. They they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of resources. For example, if you read throughout the book of James, you have wealthy landowners taking advantage of them. Rich people were bringing them to court, criticizing their faith, and yet there was even turmoil amongst the people James was writing to. Again, for example, the rich believers in the churches he was writing to, they were showing favoritism against poor believers. Widows and orphans seemed seemingly neglected, while others had the faith of demons, living for Jesus as Savior, but not obeying him as Lord, which is exactly the faith of demons. As a result, in light of all this chaos, per se, James is writing to these people, these Christians, experiencing these various trials, trials from inside the church, trials Outside the church, he is encouraging them, loved ones, you must remain steadfast. Be joyful as you're going through all these trials because it's helping you to become more like Jesus. And even besides, the one who is permitting these things to happen, he's the one who's in control. He's not responsible, as we're going to see tonight, but he is in control. And the reason why he brings it up, because when we go through difficult things, loved ones, difficult trials, even temptations, there is a serious temptation that can arise during such trials. And for James's audience, as we're going to see, it was the danger of blaming God himself. As a result then, here's really the point that James is going to try to get across here in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. And it's that Christians must rightly think about temptation. Christians must rightly think about temptation. But why? What's the big deal? And James is going to remind us of two truths on why Christians must rightly think about temptation. The first truth is, temptation comes from the sinful desires of humanity. Temptation comes from the sinful desires of humanity, that's the first truth. And secondly, is that God the creator is the essence of perfect goodness. God the creator is the essence of perfect goodness. And as we go through our text this evening, all this is going to become clear on why Christians need to rightly think about temptation. And so with all that in mind, loved ones, let's turn to that first truth, which is again, temptation comes from the sinful desires of humanity. Temptation comes from the sinful desires of humanity. Let's we'll start at verse 13. Look at your Bibles, your loved ones, where James writes these words. He begins by saying, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one and so we see how he begins our passage and look at that first phrase let no one say in the greek that's actually a command and really it's reflecting james's style of of combining all these different commands to his audience throughout his letter because he's telling them like loved ones you have to live a certain way the christian life doesn't mean that we believe in jesus by faith and do whatever we want No, if you really believe in Jesus, then there needs to be fruit in your lives that authenticates that your faith in Jesus is actually genuine. That's why he organizes his letter that way. And we see one of them here that let no one say, don't say what what he's about to say, right? And so with that in mind, what is that saying? I am being tempted by God. That is what James is commanding here. Do not say in whatever situation you may find yourself in, I am being tempted by God when experiencing the temptations, in life. And yet that sounds pretty clear, right? But there is a bit of ambiguity here based on James's point. Especially because if you have a Christian Standard Bible, that English translation in your hands, look at what it says in verse 13. It says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. And yet from the English Standard Version I just read off of, it says something a little bit different with one word. Instead of saying trial... It says, let no one say when he is tempted. And so we see tempted in the ESV, trial in the CSB. What is James getting at here? Does he mean trials, temptations? What is, what is James trying to say? And, and this to help understand this, the Greek word, and I don't, I don't like throwing Greek words at you guys, but this is important. Temptation and trial, they're, the both, they're, they're both the same word in the Greek. They're both the word parodzel, parodzel. And not only does James use that word four times and throughout our passage tonight, but it usually refers to the inner trials of temptation, um, like when, we are, when we're tempted to sin and stuff like that. And yet context is always going to help us confirm whether or not James means particularly temptations, like with sin, or just like with trial, uh, trials when it comes with like how we live life and stuff like that. And so let's look at a couple verses earlier, because James actually uses this word a couple times in chapter 1. Look earlier where James says in verses two to four, beloved, how he begins this letter. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Very encouraging passage, right? And yet what James is saying is that Believers, they are to count it all joy whenever they meet various trials of all kinds. Why? Because as he says here, it perfects your faith. It causes you to be stronger. Like when you go to the gym, at first it hurts and you don't want to work out. You don't want to do the squats. You don't want, you don't want to do the bench. You, don't, you do not want to do cardio. But over time, you get stronger physically, right? Um, that's how it is here, but with spiritual things. Yes, these trials, they are going to hurt. But yet at the end of it, It's only going to help you to become more like Jesus. That's that's the purpose of why they should count on joy. But look at how he uses the word trials. Again, it's that same word, perosmos, indicating really the outward trials of daily living. Furthermore, so that's why he uses it there at the beginning. Look how he uses it again later in verse 12 at the end of that section. James again says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast in trial. So the one who... Remains joyful, and the one who actually perseveres through the trial, that man is blessed. That man is flourishing who remains steadfast in the trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Again, another encouraging passage from James, because James is reminding his readers here that we see the purpose of trials in verses 2 to 4, that they help us to become more like Jesus. And yet in verse 12, he is showing that when he persevered to become more like Jesus, there is actually a reward at the end of that, right? Which is the crown of life, eternal life, which God promises to anyone who not only first believes upon him, but those whom God has first loved. Because we only love God because he has first loved us through the gospel of grace, through the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I mention those two passages because the overall context in. Of verses 2 to 12 is that encountering trials, first, we got to approach them with the right perspective. But not only that, but it's really communicating this outward trial of daily living that we may encounter on a day to day basis. As a result, we see then a transition between verse 12 to verse 13. James is not necessarily jumping to a new topic from, say, trials to temptations. Rather, James is just concerned about the temptation. That can arise amidst trials. That is why the ESV puts temptations, and where other translators, in the CSB puts trials. There's a lot of overlap here between these two meanings in the Greek. Although not every trial in life is a temptation, yet every temptation that you do go through, loved ones, is a trial spiritually. And so the context is in showing us is that James is talking about the inner trials of temptation that, that happens in our hearts and our own in our own spirits that can arise during the outward trials of day-to-day living. As a result, that's why the CSB, I think, captures well by saying in verse 13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. So we see two, both emphasis there. Therefore, there are many outward trials in life, right? But there is a trial that happens particularly in the inner man, in the inner person. And it's that spiritual battle between the flesh and the spirit. It's the battle with temptation, the battle with sin, loved ones. And it is a battle of when a believer experiences trials that can lead to temptation and improper response toward trials and the temptation to say, because of this, I am being tempted by God. For example, maybe like what What can lead someone to really say this? like, man, God's the one who's tempting me right now. Well, there's a bunch, of, a bunch of examples. Maybe if you're going through a financial or maybe a relational crisis, maybe the temptation in your life is to say like, oh man, has God forgotten about me? Does God even care? Maybe he's not in control anymore. Maybe sometimes the death of a loved one. I know sometimes in our, in our culture today that people go through a traumatic experience and they do what's called deconstructing their faith, that the faith that they once had as Christians, they're now deconstructing it to the point that they not only question the love of God for them, but they even start to doubt his existence. And maybe for, for other people, it might just be this, the evil we see in the world. If you don't believe me, just turn the news on for five minutes and you're going to see something that's going to break your heart, leading to some people to even question, is God even there? He seems to be silent. Is God even good. But let's bring it more personal, loved ones. How about when we sin? How about when we struggle with sin? Yes, we are justified, we are saved by our faith in Jesus, but as Martin Luther rightfully said, simultaneously, yes, we're saved, we're justified, we're children of God, but yet at the same time, we're also sinners who still struggle with sin. When you fall into a certain sin, loved one, or maybe repeat the same sin repeatedly, do you ever question maybe why God allows you to fall into that particular sin again and again? And the only reason why I'm bringing up these questions that some people may bring up is because when we ask those questions or when we, when we start to think that way, you have to be very careful. You have to guard your heart. Because to ask why God allows evil, that's one thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Just look at the book of Job. Job's struggle like, God, I know you're in control. I know you're in sovereign control over all things. But, man, this world sucks. This world, this evil, it's, it's not good. But yet, when you start to change those thoughts to be like, man, is God responsible for all this? Is God responsible for this evil? Then that's when James' words here really matters. Because when we ask questions in that way, in that sense... We're making a serious accusation against God. Because to say that God is tempting someone, or, it, or you know, that like, he's the one who let, who let me do it, is to say that he is enticing a person to sin. In other words, we're just really saying that there is evil in God, that God is not good, but rather God is evil. And James makes that clear based on what he says in the second half of verse 13. Look at your Bible's lessons, where he says this that for God, he cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. And so James is is stopping it. He is rebuking this immediately by providing two reasons why God can't be tempted in the first place, or even tempt us for that matter. First, James says, well, God, he cannot be tempted with evil. God cannot be tempted with evil. And so by James saying that, he's saying that, loved ones, it is impossible for our great high God to be tempted with evil. Not only does the the Scriptures make it clearer, but think about it a little more deeper with me. Since since temptation can lead to the impulse of sin and God is revealed in the Scripture as sinless, he cannot have the desire then to tempt people to sin at all. Because if he did, then that would mean that God is able to sin and therefore there's evil in God and therefore he ceases to exist because the Scripture says that God is goodness. And and to kind of help understand this, There was an old North African theologian philosopher. His name was Augustine of Hippo. He once said that when it comes to the idea of evil, it's really the privation of what is good. And what he was saying is that think about God. Think about the creator God. He is goodness. He is love. He is the standard of everything that we see right and good in the world. That's because of God. And everything that is wicked and sinful is what contradicts God's nature. And so it's impossible for God to be evil. But even think about this. When we look at the Genesis account, right, loved ones, when God made all things, what does he say at the end of chapter one? It was very good, a reflection of his own perfect nature. And so what, So the observation that Augustine makes then, which is really what the scriptures teach, is that God, he is goodness. And when God made all things, everything was originally good. But when it came to when Adam and Eve first sin, they weren't evil, they were made good. But when they rebelled against God, then that's when they stopped being inherently good, able to obey God, then they became less than good. They became evil, unable to obey God. And so I just mention that because when it comes to God, first and foremost, he's the standard of goodness, and he is really the transcendental standard of how we even know what is morally right and morally wrong objectively at all. Even the atheist who may not believe in God holds that truth to be self-evident. But yet, the scripture is going to clearly show that God, since he is goodness, he is really the perfect essence of goodness. And we're going to return more to that point later in verses 6 and 18. I kind of got ahead of myself. In the meantime, however, loved ones, it is important to know that since God cannot be tempted with evil because he is goodness in himself, therefore, he himself, he, he cannot tempt anyone. And I say that because as one of my Bible, one of my professors back at Bible College, he used to hopefully make this point. He used to say that God will test his people to build their character, such as through trials, but yet Satan will use those trials to turn them into temptations to destroy your character. God tests his people to build his character while Satan uses temptations to destroy your character. And I share that again because God, he does test his people, but yet to improve your character. And there's countless examples that we see in the scriptures. Do we not, loved ones? Consider the most famous one. Genesis chapter 22, when God tests Abraham's faith to see if he will sacrifice his son, Isaac, and we, and, we, and the reason why he does that so that, like, man, Abraham, you say you believe in me, but now let's see if, if your works are going to authenticate your faith in him. And if you ever read the story, are you familiar? Um, God stops Abraham might before he's about to sacrifice his son, Isaac, showing that Abraham believed in God's promises that, hey, if I sacrifice my son, Isaac, God did promise to me that it's going to be through my son, that through my seed, all the nations are going to be blessed, which ultimately Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, would come from. And so, God, so Abraham trusted in God's promises, and therefore he, his faith was built because of it. Again, this test, although it was difficult, God was able to show his faithfulness, but also grow and build Abraham's character through the process. However, in contrast, there are moments, however, that we do see that although God may test, um, provide a test for his people, that Satan or the human heart can come and twist that, and then where that was supposed to build our character, because we've get, get made it into a temptation because of false desires, it actually destroys our character in the process. And a classic example of that is, is, that, is what we see in the beginning of the book of Judges. God, at the beginning of the book of Judges, he tests the nation of Israel by surrounding Israel with all these different pagan nations, all these different nations around the world that are worshiping all these other false gods, all these other idols, all these false desires, but the one God who is the true God of all creation. And he does that because he wants to see that are they going to remain faithful to the covenant that they agreed to, or are they going to do their own thing and break it? And as a result, Israel would unfortunately, but not unsurprisingly, Failed to take all the land that God promised them, which resulted in them being like the nations around them. Instead of being a light on the hill, showing this is the God that we worship, this is the one and true God, that apart from him, there's no salvation, they became like these other nations and, and eventually obeyed and worshiped these false gods. A test designed by God, twisted into a temptation by the desires, the sinful desires of his people. And so, where God tests his people to build their character, they twist his tests, his opportunities to improve the character of his people by turning it into a temptation, by destroying their character and the process. And this becomes clear on how, on how people do this, because it's one thing that I'm saying, this, but like, how does it actually happen, John? How does it actually happen in the heart of a human to the, to the point that they actually do this, right? Well, look at the next verse in James. Look at what James says in verse 14 in your Bibles. He's gonna start to really make this clear and, and actually unfold it step by step of how does this actually happen that we as sinners, as humans, actually fall into sin. That's what he says in verse 14. James writes, But each person, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so where James has been kind of talking about that God cannot be tempted with evil and does not tempt anyone, he now makes a contrast here in verse 14. And it is the fact that each person is tempted not by God, God's not responsible, remember, but instead when each person, by their own sinful desires, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so what James is doing, he's correcting his readers by saying that their desires, that is what leads them to temptation. But what does he mean by desires here? Well, since James is talking about temptation, he is talking about the desire for really something sinful, something that God forbids, something that is wrong, something that is inherently evil rather than good, a twisted desire, right? And this word here, it actually appears in various places throughout the New Testament, but I just want to give two examples just to help illustrate this. Notice what the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.11. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles in this wilderness of this world, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And so what we see with Peter here is that he is connecting desires, at least here in this context, to passions of the flesh, which is waging war against the believer's soul. That which is sinful, that which is of the world, waging at war against the believer's soul, which has been regenerated, has been redeemed, has been brought to new life, in the gospel of Jesus. But yet, yeah, notice what, what John says in, in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, he kinda, he kinda makes it a little more clearer here. John writes, building off building on Peter, that the world, the world that we're living in right now, is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so, in context here, John is really um, referring to a summary of all of the various sinful desires of the world, such as the lust of the eyes, what we see, the lust of the flesh, our false desires, and even the pride of life, the lie that we can become like God. All of these different desires, fundamentally, they do not contain the love of God. When we pursue these sins, we are not loving God in the process because we are loving ourselves at that moment. And the reason why John brings this up, because as the world fades away, these sinful desires are going to fade away along with it as well. And if there's any person who is fundamentally marked with these desires, then you are more like the world rather than God. In other words, you're living more like an unbeliever rather than a believer, which John says, you got to examine your hearts. you got to see who are you living for at that point. And there's dozens and dozens of more of these negative examples regarding the usage of desires in these contexts, but I just share that because James' point is clear. These desires in verse 14, they are sinful desires which really lie in the hearts of every single human being. As Jesus says in the Gospels to the religious leaders of his day, that it's not what goes into the person, such as what we eat and do, that makes the person sinful. Rather, it's what comes out of the person's inner being, what comes out of our hearts. That is what makes us sinful, because we are fallen creatures by nature from birth. And so, when James says... Or let me back up really quick. And so that's what James means by desires. And to help really illustrate that, he's going to employ a metaphor here. It's a huge metaphor that starts in verse 14 and goes to verse 15. But it's a very vivid way of James making this point. Look at how he begins it by saying here in verse 14 that a person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so look at that phrase, lured and enticed. And if, you're, and if you like outdoor and you like fishing, this is fishing language here. Lures and, and enticing it, that's the, that's the language of fishing, which kind of makes sense here. Because if you think about James and when he was living with Jesus, they lived by the Sea of Galilee. And so he could have been thinking of all the fishing that was done there at the Sea of Galilee. And so to kind of help expand upon James's fishing met, met, metaphor here, let's take it one part at a time. F- think about a fish. If you ever went fishing, cast a line in f- into a lake you throw your, your, um, your fishing line out into the lake and then you usually have like bait or worms, or whatever at the end to entice the fish, right? You want the fish to get to the hook and so you put something on there to entice them and the fish sees it, they see the bait and the hook, like man, it looks good and then they grab a hold of it and then they get lured and then, and then boom, they get dragged away. Pretty vivid, pretty vivid imagery, right? But yet, in similar fashion, when our desires, now think about us loved ones, think about people, when our desires are enticed by the bait of temptation, we get hooked and are then dragged away even to our deaths to the very conclusion if we, if we let it go that far. A very vivid but really frightening picture. And this kind of reminds me, since we're talking about fishing, when I, when I went on a fishing trip years ago when, when I used to be in the Boy Scouts or when they were called the Boy Scouts, Everything's changed since then. We were in the Sierra Mountains, and I remember that we came upon a lake, and there was a bunch of fish in the lake. And it, it was all natural grown, so they never really saw a lot of human beings. And so we were bored. Like, I was passing time, and so we had our little fishing lines, and we're, we, did, we didn't bring any bait. We weren't prepared, unfortunately. But we are just, just casting our lines out into the lake and just rolling, rolling them back in, just not taking anything seriously. But the thing that surprised us was, was that when we would cast our hook it out into the lake, the fish would actually grab on. Like, man, what? and we just like bring him in, release, and just kept repeating it for for, like, for at least an hour or two. And I was thinking like, man, these fish are really dumb. These fish are really stupid. And yet, I think about that now as a young pastor, years later, it's like, man, that's, that's how we are with sin sometimes. Sometimes we see those desires like, man, that looks shiny, that looks good, that looks enticing. I want that. And yet, it's the very same thing happening to us. We get lured, we get enticed, and then, boom, we're lured and dragged away by those very things. And so, with all that in mind, now, of course, by me mentioning that, it does not change a bit. It does change a bit when we do become Christians, right? But yet, that's still the struggle that James is describing here. Whether you are an unbeliever who doesn't care what to, they want to live for, God, you're just going to live for yourself. Even as a, even as Christians, we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with those false desires, and as a result, we got to take heed. We got to be careful that we that we are on watch, we're on guard against these false desires. Because if not, then we might find ourselves getting enticed, Lord, and even to our own very deaths. Consider what the apostle Paul writes regarding this warning here that James is alluding to in 1 Corinthians chapter ten, verses twelve to thirteen. Paul writes here famously to the Corinthians. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so we always have to take heed. We always have to take heed of any temptations that may cause us to stumble and fall because if not, we may think we're all right but it's, it's at that very moment that that's our weak moment. And Satan's, Satan's like, oh, you're prideful there. And then, boom, that leads to our, to our downfall. And although temptation does not come from God, yet he still allows us to be tempted, but he never does it um, that's beyond our ability. He always provides a way out. Because, again, God uses those things to build our character. But yet when we do fall, it was because it was those traps sent by the devil, by, by his demons, even by our flesh, meant to destroy our character. Remember, God is sovereign and he allows everything to pass for a justifiable reason. Again, he's not responsible for sin, for sin derives from the sinful hearts of humans, beginning with the first one, right, Adam. Yet, God always, again, graciously provides a way out for his people from the temptation. And so, no matter what type of temptation that you may be going through, loved ones, God is faithful to provide a way to overcome that particular temptation. His grace is sufficient for you to daily overcome and to endure really those inner trials on a day-to-day basis. And this is, is gonna become more important as we consider really the last part of James's metaphor. He's not done here yet. And so look at what he says continuing on in verse 15 in your Bibles. James says that then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, Brings forth death, And before I unpack that, just as a brief exclaimer, I just have to mention that not all desire is sin. Uh, hopefully you're not hearing me wrong there. Because as a matter of fact, as Christians, now that we have believed upon the, the personal work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, we are now commanded to put off those sinful desires, to put off our old selves, and to, and to put on the new man by renewing our mind through the word of God. Rather than live for these these, these sinful desires, rather we are to stir our affections in our heart to live for the one that we were meant to live for, the creator God who is the source of goodness, beauty, of everything. He is the one that we're supposed to live by fearing and keeping his commandments. An example of that is this desire to live to the glory of God in all that you do, as parents, as children, as students, and all that you do, do it in such a way that you're living for God's glory alone. That's good desire. That's golly desire. But yet what James, again, is saying here in verse 15 is that the desires to lead to sin, that's the desires I am warning of because it's those desires that are sinful that could ultimately lead to your spiritual damnation and hell forevermore. And again, consider this metaphor that he's using here in verse 15. He says, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. That's the first part of this, the second part of this metaphor. And what's interesting here is that, look at that word conceived there. In the Greek, it's a feminine noun form, and I'm not just throwing you know grammatical terms at you to, to bore you. But James is being very intentional there. That word, conceived, it's feminine as as a grammatical um, form, but because he's saying that, think of a mother, think of a mother, for example. And I know in our in our own society today, people unfortunately get this confused. But only women could get pregnant, not people. It's impossible for a man to get pregnant. Yes, man and woman together make babies, but only a woman could get pregnant. And so with this idea of conceived, think of a mother in your head now. And he's going to use this metaphor of a mother to really close off his point here. Think about when a mother conceives, but in this metaphor, think of a mother when she conceives, but not a baby, but desire. Think of when a mother conceives desire. When she does that, it gives birth not to a child, according to James's metaphor, but rather to the child of sin. And to complete that metaphor then, James then says that once that child is then born, the child of desire, of false desire, sin, is born. It brings forth death when it is fully grown. And so, 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 so what James is doing here is very interesting because he's given a step-by-step of how sinful desire actually develops in our hearts, loved ones. Consider temptation. Temptation appears when a person is first enticed by it, is lured by that innate desire towards that evil. And once that happens, sin is conceived, and once sin begins to fully grow, it brings forth death. That's what James is warning of his people here. And that's what God is warning us of today, that, hey, this is how sin works. Be aware of it so that you can know how it works exactly, so that you can know how to biblically and practically deal with it. Because James's point here is that temptations first, not all temptations are sinful. And what I mean by that is that, If you're tempted, there is a chance that, say, if you're tempted, doesn't mean that you sin every single time. They only become sinful, however, if you give into that desire, because when you give into that desire, then that's when sin is conceived in your heart. And so, with all that in mind, loved ones, you must resist temptation at all costs. You must. As John Owen is famous for saying, he was a Puritan writer, he says, you got to be killing sin. You've got to be killing sin each and every single day of your lives because if not, that sin, it's going to be killing you. We have to live a life of daily repentance. We have to live a life of being on guard against the attacks of the enemy because the moment that we fall, fall asleep, if it was a real battleground, we're going to get shot up. We're going to explode and die. How much more when it comes to spiritual matters. The moment we face temptations, whether it appears outwardly or inwardly, you must flee that temptation immediately. Don't flirt with it. Run away from it. If the temptation to explode into anger, if you struggle with that during a difficult circumstance, such as difficult co-workers or traffic, traffic up here sucks, resist that urge immediately. Put that sin off and replace your mind with holy and righteous thoughts. I know one thing that helps me is praying. Like, man, that guy cut me off. Like, oh, you know, like, you know, Lord, I pray for that person. that He doesn't kill himself and everyone else around him, you know, maybe that can help. Maybe if the temptation is a lustful thought, slay the idea immediately. Do not think, do not think longer or ponder upon it one second longer. Instead, replace it with good, holy meditations on what true beauty is and what true love is, as we see in the majesty and love of Christ. If 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 you struggle with the temptation to doubt God or give into anxiety, if that begins to linger in your heart, abandon it. Get rid of it and recall God's providence. I'm not in control. That's that's an obvious fact, but yet there is one who's in control, and that's God, and according to the promises of Scripture, that all that happens, according to to me, is for my good, according to God's perfect will. So so what do I have to fear? What do I have to be afraid of? Again, temptation itself is not sinful. Only when we give into the temptation does it become sinful, and so if there, if there are any fellow believers here, any of you loved ones or anyone listening online who is discouraged by a repetitive sin that keeps coming back in your life or you find yourself like, man, I'm always being tempted by this. Am I really growing in Christ-like holiness? And not only that, but man, because I always deal with this, does God really love me? And I can tell you, loved ones, he does not love you less compared to if you want to struggle with it. Because remember, as Paul says to the Romans, God so loved us that he set his son while we, were, while we were still his enemies. Doesn't give us an excuse to sin, but shows that you know, God doesn't save us because of, you know, we're more righteous or more holier than thou. Rather, God sent his son because he chose to love us out of, out of the grace of his good glory. And so we will all experience temptation then in this life. Even till the day we die. This is the unfortunate reality. Even our Lord Jesus, even he suffered temptation while on the earth, of course, without sin, But he did that so that he can help us who are being tempted. Consider what Hebrews 2.18 says about this. He says, For because Jesus, Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, loved ones, your maturity as a Christian, it is never based on the frequency of temptations in your life. Instead, it is based on the frequency of your resistance against temptations that matters. Because the moment we don't resist that temptation, the moment we don't turn to Christ, the moment we contemplate about maybe climbing up and blowing up against people we're losing our patience with, the moment we let that lustful thought linger a little too long, the moment we give into doubt and anxiety, that is the moment sin is conceived in our hearts. And yet, the good news is that you can still repent in Christ Jesus. And I recommend that if you do repent, repent of Repent the moment that sin is conceived. You know, if it comes to your mind, like repent of it immediately. Don't wait ten hours later. You know, five hours later, two days later. If it comes to mind, it's like, no, Lord, forgive me for for that thought coming to my mind. Crush it now, because if you do that, it's only you are protecting yourself from allowing that little sin, that 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 little seed, that little child of sin, that false desire, from developing into something a lot more worse later on. If you don't deal with it right then and there, because where many sins start small. Over time, left unchecked, it can turn into a beast that is really difficult to slay. And if left untamed, it will lead you to to your death, if we're not careful, ultimately forever in hell. And we see an example of that in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain. God warned Cain about how sin was creeping like a monster, ready to slay him due to his jealousy of his brother Abel. And yet what does Cain do? Instead of heeding the warning of the Creator God to repent and slay his sin... Sin killed Cain while he killed Abel. This is why James says later in chapter 4, verse 7 of his letter, that loved ones, you must submit yourselves to God because it's only when you submit yourselves to God will you be able to resist the devil. And it's only when you start resisting the devil that he will flee from you. He will leave you alone. And so to resist temptation, whether it's instigated by Satan and his demons or just by our own sinful desires, loved ones, we must always submit ourselves to God. It's like, no, I'm not going to live for my own selfish desires. I'm going to put these away. Christ has died for me on the cross. I am going to live for him. And even for the unbelievers in their lives, you know, they, they may think that living for the world is, is, is it, being, a, being truly authentic to themselves, doing whatever they want, following their own heart. Yet, yeah, it's by helping them see, like, yeah, these desires, you may think this is the answer, but it's only going to lead to more brokenness. Rather, you need to repent, you need to find that there's only true joy, true peace, true happiness when we deny ourselves and realize that, God, I have sinned against you, I, I, I repent and I believe in your Son, Jesus. It's, it's only We can only live the good life, both as Christians and unbelievers, everyone, by, by submitting to the one who is in control of all things. And that's the goodness of the gospel. But yeah, you might be asking yourself, like, but John, that's all good and all, but how do we actually do that? How do we practically... Resist the devil? How do we practically resist temptation on a day to day basis? And the good news is, loved ones, is that we actually have a perfect model to live by. And it's, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that time in his life when Jesus was being tempted by Satan when he was here 2,000 years ago in his earthly ministry, when he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 49s, and then, boom, at his weakest, humanly speaking, then Satan comes and starts tempting him. What does Jesus start doing? Satan tempted Jesus three times, and how does Jesus respond? He combats the attacks of the enemy, these temptations, with Scripture, by quoting Scripture to the enemy. And it wasn't just some random verse. It wasn't that Satan was like, hey, you can have all the power of the world. And, you know, Jesus says, like, yeah, um, like God, like he, he, all the Scriptures that Jesus re- rebuked the the, the devil They were particularly refuting the temptations of Satan himself. And as a result, since we as Christians, we are called to live in submission to God's word, that is the way of how we resist the devil. That is the way of how we resist temptation. It is by reading his word. It is by meditating upon the word, by praying the word, by sharing the word with others, whether it be believer or unbeliever, living out according to the word, and even memorizing the word and keeping it tucked away in our hearts. And so the next time, loved ones, that you find yourself encountering a particular temptation, remember, have a memory verse at mind. That's the most effective strategy. If it's sexual immorality that you're dealing with, memorize verses that deal particularly with that. If you find yourself being very impatient, then do the same. If you find yourself being angry, do the same. If you lack contentment in life, do the same. Jesus lived in humility while he walked this earth as a man. And yet we ought to imitate that. We ought to imitate his example by submitting ourselves to God through his word. And when we do so, it is at that moment that the power of God's word, that, that that's when Satan's going to leave, when the demons run and our temptation does not bother us at all. Therefore, loved ones, when you experience the various outward trials of life, never give into the inner trial of temptation of complaining or grumbling against God, blaming God or blaming others. Never blame God for your sin because all sin stems really from our desires, loved ones, which leads to sin and ultimately death. Temptation truly comes from the sinful desires of humanity. And and again, this is going to be a fact that becomes even more clear when we look at the second truth this evening, which is this, that God the Creator is the essence of perfect goodness where we've seen that sinful desires come from humanity, it is God the creator who is the essence of perfect goodness. And so look how how James continues his argument here in verse 16. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. And so James has been mentioning, so here he mentions another command, right? Don't be deceived. And he is directly addressing his church family, my beloved brothers, which also includes sisters. He is commanding them, do not be deceived, do not be tri- tricked, do not be duped. In other words, James is calling his readers not to be deceived by the lie of believing that God is responsible for evil. Because he just spent the last couple of verses explaining how temptation comes from our desires as fallen humanity, right? And so as a result, this verse is acting really as a transition passage, a transition between verses 13 to 15 that sins comes from people and really to the next part of verses 17 to 18. It's not only to point readers back to what James has just said, but it's also preparing them with what's coming up ahead, uh, particularly that God, he is goodness. He is the perfect essence of goodness. And he's going to make it clear that it is impossible. It is absolutely impossible, loved ones, that God is the author of sin. And so look at your Bible, loved ones, at verse 17. James says here that every good gift... Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so a lot of everything that James has been saying regarding temptation and evil and sin, he mentions now three key attributes of who God is in verse 17. And these are going to be three attributes that really show that, wow, God is not the author of sin. That, 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 that much is clear. So look at the first attribute here. He says at the first part of verse 17 that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. But what does James mean that he says good and perfect gifts? What are those good and perfect gifts? And the key to understanding is where do they come from? And the text says they come from above. And what this, and what this communicates then is that there's only one alone who is above the heavens. There's only one being who is above the highest heavens, above creation itself, and that is the creator, God. And so when James is describing then that every good and perfect gift comes from God above, he says that everything good in this world comes from God himself. And so everything that we experience here in creation, whether it be music or uh, entertainment, sports, art, the sciences, good food, relationships, all of those things are good gifts and we can only call them good because they come from the one who is good. And that's the most high triune, creator God. And kind of thinking about that, right? That's a direct contrast to what James has been saying in verses 13 to 15 earlier where every, everything bad comes from the sinful desires of people such as war, slavery, racism, hatred, immorality. All that comes from the sinful desires of people on this world but yet everything good, everything perfect, all those good gifts, they come from the, they come from the one who, who made the heavens and the earth, the creator God of the Bible. Furthermore, God's good and perfect gifts, they come down from heaven above to the earth below. And, the, and that verb or that phrase coming down in the Greek, it's, it's expressing this continuous idea. So it's not that God is like, all right, here's a couple gifts and boom, that's all you get forever, right? No, God is continuously showing grace He's always giving good and perfect gifts to those here on the earth. And the, the, the fancy theological term is calling grace. Whether it be rains or this daily necessities such as food or, you know, providing um, food for, the, for livestock so that we can have meat in our, in our grocery stores or farmers being able to cultivate plants and harvest food so that when we go to grocery stores we're able to eat or, you know, we have water filtration systems in our city so that we can have clean water. People are able, people are able to cut down trees to build houses and stuff like that. All of those things are, gr- are graces. Those are gifts from God. Not that he has to show that, right? But to both unbeliever and believer, he shows that I am the creator God and I want to show my grace to those in my creation. And he has every right to do so. That's what it means that, every, that these gifts are continuously coming down. Really, truly then, our God is a gracious God. Soul judge of sin because he is the just judge of the universe, but yet he is still a good God for that matter. James then further further his, his um, description of God with the second attribute. So we see that, you know, all these good gifts come from God continually. But notice what James also calls God. He says that God is also the Father of lights. The Father of lights. And now that's a title never used anywhere in the Bible, but the idea is clearly mentioned in the beginning of the Bible. Now think about this. God, who made the sun, the moon, the stars, all that happened on the fourth day of creation in Genesis 1 or as Genesis calls it, the great lights of the heavens. And really then, the one who made the great lights of the heaven, God the Father made it all. The triune God of the Bible, he is the one who made it all. It all comes from him. In other words, God is the one who is responsible for making it because if God did not then, then those great lights and everything in creation would not exist because, loved ones, we and everything else in creation is contingent upon God for our existence. Furthermore, then, God is not only the source of everything good and perfect, alongside being the father of lights, but James also sets up an interesting at the end of verse 17. He says, with whom, with this God, there is no variation or shadow due to change. And the idea of variation of shadow, it can either refer to maybe the constant movement of the planets, the sun, the moon, and the stars, or really just the general change of creation throughout space and time. Whatever the, the, the interpretation like better it still says that hey everything in the world it's changing but with god he never changes where everything is is changing over time you know things de- decay and grow old yet with god he is the same yesterday today and forever and what james is teaching us here is again that god is immutable really the after that god he never changes god never changes he never does anything new and never does anything less. Again, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And to kind of help expand upon that idea, there's two passages I want to highlight really quick. Malachi 3.6, the prophet Malachi of Israel, he says this on behalf of God. God says, for I, the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Israel, are not consumed. And so what Malachi is bluntly saying is that God, he's a God who does not change. And that's good news because even when you consider the children of Israel and here in Malachi 3.6, if God changed, then the children of Israel, we, even we as God's people, how can we even trust that? Man, is God going to keep his promise? Man, God's, God's very bipolar this day. Is he going to judge us this, this, one, this one hour and then the next show us grace? No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And that is good news for us loved ones because he shows us grace continually. And it's also good news re- in reality because he also is consistent in how he shows goodness and also how he judges evil as well. That's what Malachi kind of shows us. But also consider what the Apostle John says. In 1st 1 John 1.5, the language is very similar here. He says, this is the message. That's the gospel. This is the message that we have heard from him, that is Jesus. And proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And so God then, he is pure light in the sense that there is no darkness in him at all. There is no evil or wickedness in God at all. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. And that is why he is the perfect essence of goodness. Because he does not waver from being evil and good or light to dark. No, he is light. That's who he is in his nature. God is goodness to the point that if he sees being good, he ceases being God at all. That is why we can know that every good and perfect gift Comes from Him. That's why we can know whether believer and unbeliever, skeptic or believer, that in our consciences we know that there is there is ultimate right and wrong. And again, that comes because there is an there is an ultimate moral law. And we know that exists because there is an ultimate law giver, which again, the Creator God. I am goodness. I am light. Everything that is sinful and wicked goes against who I am. And everything good and pure in this world is because I made it. I'm the one who is responsible. For that. And to kind of really close this, this idea, and really our section tonight, loved ones, James is going to offer an example. And it's not only an example to help clarify his point, but really it's the greatest gift that God has given to humanity, to anyone for that matter. And so look at the final verse of our passage this evening, loved ones, where James says in verse 18, of his own will, that's God's, of his own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And so where temptation alongside every evil thing in this world comes from the desires of humanity, everything good comes from one who is good. That's God. Therefore, James presents one reason to express one of God's good and perfect gifts. And he begins by discussing of how of God's own will, he brings forth his people By the word of truth. In other words, by the will of God alone, not a combination of God and man or man alone, rather by God's will alone, he chooses to bring forth people from death to life. To bring people from death so that they could be born again and have everlasting life with him forevermore. It's not based on the will of people that he saves to be born again. Instead, this is something that God does on his own. And since only God can do what is good, he then is the only one who can cause people to be born again. Because think about it, humanity, we can only do what is evil by nature. And so if if we're going to be born again to do a miracle like that, only God can do that. Only God could take sin away from our lives and help us to be on trajectory to be more like Christ and our lives. But maybe that's not clear at first. And I know some people would push back on me regarding that. But what James is going to say next is actually very key to this whole, to this whole idea. Look, look again at verse 18 when James references the word of truth. What is it? Well, contextually in the New Testament, the word of truth, it always talks about the gospel. That God has sent his eternally begotten son to redeem a people back to himself again from all the nations by grace alone. This actually appears four times throughout the New Testament, and again, it's always referring to that gospel of Jesus. And not only that, though, but James in verse 21, later in his letter, he actually calls it that it's the implanted word able to save people's souls. And so again, the idea of God bringing forth a people by the word of truth, that is the gospel, shows how he is saving them all according to his perfect will alone. And yet, James is going to add another detail that makes us all the more precious all the more valuable, which is actually undergirding our assurance, our living hope that we have as Christians in Jesus, James says that God does all this so that we should be so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures and I know everyone understands what that means. It is an interesting phrase, but let 's talk about first fruits. what is first fruits it 's a major theme in the Old Testament, and it's actually used to talk about Christians in the New Testament, you and me, loved ones. And more particularly, it could be best understood really as a down payment. Like say if you're making a down payment on a car or a house or the first installment. But, but what is it a down payment of? What is it a first installment of? Well, look at what James says in, in verse 18. He says, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And what this is referring to really is that not only God's creatures like the animals or even more particularly humanity, but it's referring to all of creation here. And, and, and only, and so with that in mind then, we know that God, through the gospel of Christ, yes, he has redeemed the people back to himself again. He is calling people to his own glory through the gospel of grace as the church preaches the gospel of what Christ has done on the cross and that he has rose again from the grave. Keep that in mind because that is actually the down payment of what James is talking about here. Because when Christ came here 2,000 years ago, he says that I am going to return to make all things new. In Christ's first coming, he came to redeem a people back to himself by dying on the cross, doing the work of his father, by providing atonement, providing forgiveness of sins by a perfect man, dying in our place as guilty sinners so that if you repent of your sins and believe in him, you will be saved. And that's the down payment that James is talking about. And, and why? Because again, Christ is going to return and says, and when Christ returns, that's when he's going to make all things new. That is when he's going to restore this broken creation. That is when he's going to make all things new and, 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 and judge sin and death once and for all and establish the eternal heavens, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And that's encouraging because the, because the promise of that we know that's going to happen is that he has saved Christians. The fact that you are standing here right now, loved ones, is evidence that Christ is going to not only return, but he's going to keep his promise of making all things new. That's the down payment that James is talking about. And just to kind of further expound upon this, I just want to read what Paul says in Romans 8, 19 to 23, very helpful here. He says, for the creation, that is all of creation, it waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Wow. The fact that he redeems a people now, the fact that the church exists, we are the down payment that Christ is not only going to return, but to come to make all things new. To judge evil once and for all, but to bring in perfect peace as he comes as the king of peace to make all things new in the second coming. And this all happens according to God's sovereign will. He saved the people back to himself. We as Christians, by his grace, it's a gift, through the gospel-saving power— And that was only possible because we were able to believe and to follow him as Lord and Savior. Remember, we are that down payment, loved ones. We are the down payment of Christ's return and bring in the new creation. Where the sins of humanity brought sin and death into the world, subjecting it to futility, God through his son Jesus has begun the renewal process. And the evidence, again, is that by graciously saving a people through the gospel, according to his will alone, all these things are going to come true one day in the future. Therefore, God is the essence of perfect goodness. Not only does everything good come from him alongside his unchanging nature, but he does so through the greatest gift imaginable, offering eternal life in his son Jesus to those who cannot save themselves. Where humanity is prone to wander into temptation, God did not choose to leave us as his people behind in the darkness. He brings us into the light instead. He calls his people into the light to believe in Jesus. As a result, we can never blame God. We can never blame God for evil. How can we? All that comes from us. And yet God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for his sins so that everyone who would believe in him would have new life in him. That's James's point here in chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. And it's with that in mind, we've got to close our time by asking ourselves a question. Have we ever blamed God for our sin, for evil in this life? Are you perhaps blaming him for something right now about it? And wherever you may be, the only, the, the only right response loved ones is not to blame him for it, but to take responsibility for your own sin. Do not blame God, for he, it is not his fault. He only gives good things, so how can we blame him for what is evil? The bad things in this world all stem from the fallen desires of our hearts, and not only that, but we were born this way. But it is the curse we all experience as children of Adam. That's part of our nature. But yet the goodness of the gospel is that we can find repentance. We can find forgiveness from God. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 1.9, this is one, one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture, John says that if we confess our sins, he, that is Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. And now think about that. If you truly confess in your heart that, God, I have sinned against you, I have rebelled against your good creation, forgive me, what's the response? He is faithful. He is just, according to his good nature, to show you forgiving grace that, yes, I will forgive you because I died on the cross for you. And not only that, but that is going to be the catalyst to help you to become more like Jesus um, until you are fully glorified in the new heavens and the new earth. God is, God is faithful to forgive our sins, and he will also cleanse us from it. So let us no longer walk in, with, with this wrong idea of temptation, loved ones. The truth is that temptation derives from our sinful desires. And although only good things come from God, he sent his only begotten son into the world to live, to die, and to rise again from the grave so that all who would believe in him would be redeemed, would be saved, and would be called his people through the gospel. And it is with this great gift that as we as believers, church, that we should always thank God for he is perfect goodness it leads us to put off our sinful ways and to continually to grow, to become more like Jesus Christ because that's the will, that's his will for our lives and that is what we ought to do until he returns to make all things new. So with all that in mind, loved ones, we're gonna close in prayer and we're also gonna approach the Lord's Supper, which I'll explain after that, um, but, but also um, before we approach the Lord's Supper, we're gonna um, do a final song and sing that together as well. And so um, join me in prayer, loved ones, and, I'll, and we'll get prepared for the Lord's Supper. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity just to hear your word preached again. I just pray that, Lord, we are always going to be dealing with sin on a day-to-day basis. We are always going to be dealing with temptation, Lord, especially in our own culture, Lord, as it grows more secular and it grows more hostile towards the gospel. I just pray for my church family. I pray for each and every individual here and for those who are not here, Lord. I pray that, Lord, help them, Lord, to wage the good warfare against their sin. Help them to not only contend for the truth of the gospel in Christ Jesus our Lord, but help them, Lord, to, to, to each and every single day to live a life of repentance, to, which will cause them to not desire their sins more, but it will, it will be less, and that they'll desire their sins less and desire you, King Jesus, all the more. Because, Lord, you make known to us the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Help us to live for you, King Jesus. And if there's anyone here or anyone listening online who is an unbeliever, help them to see that, Lord, despite their doubts and their skepticism that, God, there is only true life that can be found in you, King Jesus, I pray that they would only consider the Christianity of Christ and not be diluted by the Christianity of man. God, we thank you that we are saved by grace through our faith in you. And I just pray that as we approach the Lord's Supper, Lord, it'll just be another reminder of this wonderful grace that we have in King Jesus. And so, Lord, we we love you, we thank you, and we lift up all these things in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.